continually. You may be a great Christian outwardly, but God can see exactly when. He can look at your heart and see that it is only thinking of evil things continually, of wicked and perverse things. You can't hide wicked living from God. May I ask everyone to stand with me and turn to our kind of beginning passage here. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And then once everyone is there, uh, let's read it out loud together. So Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. And it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You may be seated. Now anyone know if no anyone who knows me knows that I'm not the biggest fan of high school. I wasn't the biggest fan of high school. There was just a lot of things that I didn't like with it. But from my memories, the thing that I dreaded most in high school, one of the things that I dreaded most was entering the boys' locker room. All right? Now, I have no clue what the state of the girls' locker room is. I'm assuming it smells nice and fresh. But in the boys' locker room, there is no such thing as fresh air. All right? There is no such thing as fresh air. It either smelled like heavy body odor of 30 teenage guys who just finished running suicides in PE. Or it smelled of Axe body spray, which is one of the most obnoxious body sprays in the world. But besides the smell of the locker room, not once have I walked into that room and have seen the toilets in functioning condition. Every time I walked in, uh, a bunch of pranksters would always stuff the toilets with rolls of toilet paper. And it was never functioning, it was always out of order, and I'm pretty sure the faculty just gave up. But honestly, the real reason why I didn't like the locker room was because of how other guys would talk and act behind closed doors. Behind closed doors and when separated from teachers, all sorts of profanity starts spewing out, spewing out of their mouths. Vulgarity, dirty jokes, bullying was commonplace in the locker room. And that last part regarding bullying was the number one reason why I disliked entering the locker room. Now, I didn't fit the mold of a jock or a popular kid, I was on the other end. That was susceptible to bullying. Now the purpose of a locker room was so that you could change out of your gym clothes and into normal clothes so that you wouldn't smell for your, the rest of the day. However, changing was the perfect opportunity in high school to get bullied. If you didn't look like, ah, the first person that came to my mind is Zac Efron, you were gonna get bullied. Some were made fun of for the clothes that they wore you know, for the, the choices that they decided to wear to school that day. But most people were made fun of for their bodies, right? And I hated publicly changing all throughout my teen years because I was very self-conscious. As a teenager, you're very self-conscious about your weight. And all throughout my life, I was teased about being skinny, being uh, the cinnamon sticks guy in the cereal or whatever else. Uh, all sorts of stuff. And some were mean and some were funny, but all of them were just kind of got, uh, got to me. And I just hated being 
wearing short sleeve shirts, and I hated being shirtless or changing in public. That's why I would always go into a stall and change there. Because changing to me, I felt like all of my physical flaws were on display to the entire class. And I felt extremely susceptible to insults. In short, I didn't like that feeling of being vulnerable, that vulnerability. It's in our teen years and young adult years that we are most insecure about the flaws of our life, specifically physical flaws. We learn and become decent at masking and hiding all of the physical things that are wrong with us so as to avoid criticism, so as to avoid ridicule. Now that's regarding physical flaws. But when it comes to hiding our character flaws, we are much more proficient. We are experts, even. We are excellent when it comes to wearing figurative masks that we use to hide our bad personality traits. But unfortunately, though you may be able to fool everybody, you may be able to fool everybody in this room today, there is one, there exists one, who can see right through your mask. Now let me repeat a phrase from the verse we just read. Look, to me, look with me in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him. Talk about feeling vulnerable. All things are naked and exposed in the sight of God. No matter how great you are at masking certain things, God can see it. This is a uh, uh, rhetorical question, but can anything truly be kept secret? Can anything be truly hidden from our omniscient God? Now this is the topic of tonight's sermon. Omniscience is that attribute of God of being all-knowing. He knows everything. To know everything there is to know about the universe. He, ha- he knows everything that took place in the past, that is taking place in the present, and that will take place in the future. He knows the large and the, the minutest details. But specifically toward us, which also serves as the title of tonight's sermon, he is aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly that resides within each of us. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would equip me and enable me to preach your word. Allow me to preach exclusively your word and not mine. And I pray that you would help me uh, be spirit-filled and preach with power and all love and humility. And I pray, Lord, that you would work within each and every single one here present today, tonight. And I pray that you, uh, ultimately, that you also work on the preacher's heart, on my heart, Lord, that you make this uh, something that is very true in my life as well. And I pray that your presence be made known tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm aware that this title, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, is a reference to a movie. I've never seen the movie myself. Uh, from Bro- Brother Johan said that Clint Eastwood was in there, apparently. So I'm not sure. I haven't watched the movie. But the first point here tonight is the good. God sees the good in us. Now, turn to Psalm 14.3. Psalm 14.3. And then I want you to put your finger on that passage and then turn your other way to Romans 3.12. So keep your finger on Psalm 14 and turn to Romans 
3.12. And we'll read them one after the other. Okay, so Psalm 14.3, if you look with me there, it says, They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And in Romans 3.12, it says, They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So when I say that God knows the good in us, what do I mean? Both these verses are saying that no man is capable of doing good. It says, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, some might try questioning and challenging the statement in this verse and say, that's not true, Brother Ivan. Look at all of these philanthropists over here. We have Bill Gates, who it says, at least Wikipedia says, that he's donated nearly $36 billion. And in second place is Warren Buffett, who's donated $34 billion to charitable causes. Look at all of these philanthropists. Aren't the things that they've done and the money they've donated, were those, weren't those good acts? Over here, you have charities. Over there, you have organizations that are feeding the poor and needy, a very admirable cause. Not to mention the everyday heroes who are committing selfless and, and selfless deeds and acts. The Bible is wrong, Brother Ivan. People are capable of doing good. Now, the verses above, from what I understand, are not speaking of man's incapability to perform any good acts. Because as I've just done, I machine gunned a few seconds ago all of the good things that people do in everyday life. That people are capable of performing good acts at least according to societal standards. What that verse means, however, is that we are not capable of performing anything good that is actually of eternal value. In our natural state, when we are unsaved, our inclination is to do what? To do evil, to do wicked things, to perform acts that benefit self and not others. In Genesis, when God made Adam, he saw that his creation was very good. He looked at Adam and he said that it was very good. For all of the other things that he made, he said it was good. But for Adam, he said it was very good. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, humanity has forever been marred by the wickedness of sin. Essentially, when we are unsaved and unregenerate, all the good that we do, unfortunately, is eternally worthless. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So, if we are incapable of good, what do I mean when I say God sees the good in us? Even though our righteousness is as filthy rags, there is one man's perfect righteousness that can be imputed upon our account. Imputed means to be added to our account. All the good that we do in our natural state are worthless in eternity if we do not have Jesus Christ first in us. That's what salvation is. Christ lived a perfect, sinless life and flawless life and died for the sins of every man and woman and child and adult so that His perfect righteousness could be added into our account. And what determines ultimately our entrance into heaven it's not about how many good things we do. Not, how, not about how many philanthropic works that we do and perform in earth. 
But what determines our entrance into heaven is whether or not Jesus' righteousness has been added to our, our account. And His righteousness can only be had if we first make a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ to be our personal Lord and Savior, to sincerely accept His gift of salvation. The good that I'm talking about and referring to, the good that God sees in every one of us believer, believers is His Son. He can look right through your act and He can see whether or not Jesus Christ actually resides within your heart. There may be some here tonight that when God looks at your heart, He doesn't see any good. He doesn't see His Son. And folks, if you are unsure of your salvation, I plead with you to make this the highest priority of your life. No matter how many good acts you perform, like the old Judaizers of the New Testament, your good works will never merit you entrance into heaven and will never merit you eternal life. But to those who are saved, to those who have Christ in us, this fact is an encouragement. Now, many times we are awfully hard on ourselves. We're very tough on ourselves. We're critics of ourselves. But when God sees that Christ is residing within each of us, He is thinking of us as His precious children. We're often afraid. You know, when you're serving God, you're often afraid that your service for Him will be inadequate. That your service for Him is useless. That your service for Him will be in vain or worthless eternally. There are many who labor and toil and, and work for years for, the, for God without any outward recognition from others. And over time, they increasingly become discouraged. They increasingly become depressed even and burnt out because they feel like as their work is useless to God. But folks, when God sees Christ in you, His children, He also sees all of the hard work that you put in for Him, all your service, all your toiling, all your labor, all your sweat. Other people may never notice, but God always does when He sees Christ in you at first and foremost. I'm reminded of David Brainerd. He was a man who toiled by himself for a long time, just preaching to the, the natives of America. And he was often depressed. He was often alone. But he was an inspiration to many future missionaries. God noticed his toiling. 1 Corinthians 15:58, a, a beloved verse to many of us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor, if we do it with a sanctified heart, with a, with a pure heart, it's never in vain. God sees the good in us, which is Jesus Christ. And through Christ and the Spirit's indwelling, we are able to serve Him. We're able to do good things that are of eternal value. And lastly, in terms of this point, not only does He know whether or not His Son resides within us, not only does He notice the work that we do for Him, but He also knows each one of our good and perfect ending to our lives. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, back when I was a child, I'm pretty sure many of you are aware of this, 
this series, but you, you know, who's aware of the Choose Your Own Adventure books that you had in, in elementary? Choose Your Own Adventure. Only Brother Tushan, <laughs> Brother Robin, Jason. Okay, only a few people. But there was these books where if you... Basically, it was a story, story kind of thing where you choose your own path. Based on the paths that you take, you get a certain ending. And all the time, when I would read through it the first time, I would always get like, oh, I got killed by a bear for doing something dumb. And I never liked that ending. So I would always, always, always repeat that book until I get to the good ending. Because I wanted the, I wanted the perfect ending. I wanted the ending where I actually live in that book. And when I grew up as a teenager, there were also games where you can play and you decide your own path. And sometimes I would spend hours and to, only to get the bad ending and I have to replay the whole thing just to get the perfect ending. Because I desire a perfect ending. And that's with virtual things. Now, I'm sure many of us here tonight desire the perfect ending for your own life. You don't want to have a lousy ending to your life. And folks, choosing to deny God's will is also simultaneously choosing to not have the best ending in your life. It's choosing to deny the best ending of your life. God has a specific path that He wants us to traverse, and that leads to our greatest end, our greatest good. And oftentimes, we look at that path, and we look at all the, the obstacles and stumbling blocks that are on that path, and we go this way. And we go this way, which leads to a mediocre path. Mediocre ending, or an average at best ending. Whereas if we would have just stayed with God, who knew what was best for us, we could have had and lived out our best ending. Let us be seekers of God's will, so that one day when at your life's end, you will experience God's greatest ending for your life. But for the unsaved, everything else that I'm going to say after this point is not of any worth. This is the most important point for tonight. Because if he looks into your heart right now and he doesn't see God, he doesn't see his son in you, he does not see any good in your heart. And your fate is eternity in hell. God knows the good and sees the good in each and every single one of us. Point number two, he sees the bad. Now I alluded to this point just a few moments ago. We are often extremely and awfully hard on ourselves. We are critics of ourselves, or at least many of us are. We often doubt our own character. Now, most here today, if I asked you in like a one-on-one, -on -one, very serious conversation, and I asked you to list out all of your character flaws and weaknesses and to just kind of wax eloquent on all your weaknesses, you would probably be able to write essays on all the things that are wrong with you. Now, maybe no one else can relate, but I for sure can write essays on everything that I, I fall short, and in every area that I fall short in. I can list many instances in which I failed not only myself, not only my parents, but I failed other people who I was close to, and ultimately I failed God. I can name instance after instance after instance after instance of all of my failures. I can list out all of my character flaws to all the things that I'm struggling with. I know that I can be very prideful. In certain areas of my life, I can be very prideful. I can, be, I can be very argumentative. You can ask my sister, or my elder sister Hannah. I will not drop an argument unless I win. And the best way, I, I forgot who said this, but they said the best way to win an argument is to avoid having an argument in the first place. But for my prideful heart, especially with my sister, I don't know why it's my sister always, but I always have that urge to just keep arguing and arguing until I arise as the winner. 
But being a winner is at the cost of the car just being very sullen and quiet because I've offended my sister. And oftentimes, I win an argument. Ten minutes later, I'm replaying everything that I've said, and I'm just kind of saddened about what I said. And I, I feel very regretful that I even made fun of her. I'm highly imperfect. When I'm hungry, when I'm tired, I know for a fact that my, that my mouth and my, my tongue gets more loose. It, it becomes unbridled. You know, the, the things that I, I would usually withhold, I, I burst out in anger when I'm tired or hungry. It's called hangry. And I, I'm very, and that's not an excuse though. Being hangry is not just a, a phenomenon that is just natural to us. That is something that we are responsible and accountable for. And I know that I am very, I'm a very poor sport when I'm tired and when I'm hungry. And on the list goes, I can write out flaws and all, of, and all uh, examples of my flaws very, in, in great detail. I know all of the things that are bad with me. And I'm sure everyone here is aware of also of their own shortcomings, of their own failures. But God not only sees the good in us, but He also knows about the bad, the weaknesses. He knows of all of our shortcomings. And He knows in which areas we often fail and get defeated by Satan. There's nobody in the Bible who is more aware of this fact than the Apostle Paul. And Pastor White kind of alluded to it in the morning. So let's turn with me to a chapter that Pastor White asked you to turn this morning. 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, and it's a lengthier passage. We'll be reading verses 5 to 10. And because it's a lengthy passage, I'll ask the help of everyone else in the room. And let's read these five verses together. 2 Corinthians 12, 5 to 10. Read it out loud with me. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul didn't glory in his successes. He gloried, in fact, in his infirmities. He gloried in the fact that he was feeble, that he was frail and weak, that he had this and he learned to accept the thorn in his flesh. And Pastor White believes it was eyesight. I'm more so in the group that believes it was just all of that pain and aches that he suffered all throughout those years of persecution. He may have had poor eyesight too. Who knows really? And it doesn't really matter in the grade of the day. But he had this thorn in the flesh. He was a feeble, frail, weak man. And we imagine Paul to be this great hero, and he was. He was a great Christian, but in physical stature, he was probably this very frail man a very shriveled man where he didn't really have much physical stature to him. He was very weak because of all the things that he had to go through for Christ. Now, was Paul clinically insane? Was Paul insane for saying that he gloried in his weaknesses and in his infirmities? 
Why would one glory in their weaknesses? If you go to any, you go, you interview any uh, top athlete in whatever sport you decide to choose, you interview them, and they will hardly glory in their weaknesses. In fact, they would completely gloss, they would admit in an interview, they said, I don't have any weaknesses. There's nothing wrong with my game. I have perfect stats in everything. And then you play a clip of them missing a layup or missing a shot. No one is perfect. And every world-class athlete of performance today, they always bring attention. They always bring light towards the areas in which they excel in. They bring light to the things that they are good at. That's the, the flesh, the natural way to do it. There was this, I forgot her name, but she was a, she was a sprinter. She was a woman sprinter. She represented USA. And she kept talking a lot of smack that she would win. If, because she, at first she was forbidden from racing because of weed, weed usage. But then she was allowed through different circumstances. And she raced and she had all of this trash talk to say. But when the race actually happened, the two runners in Jamaica completely smoked her. And they had all this talk. And she said she had this perfect, this perfect runner. But she wasn't. We like to glory in our strengths. We like to glory at what makes us, uh, what makes people compliment us. But here's Paul, who did the exact opposite. When he had so much, many things that he did for the Lord, so many great things that he's done, he brings attention to the Corinthians, not to his great work, but to his infirmities, for his weakness. Why did Paul take pleasure in his weakness? Well, it's not top secret. Because he mentions it in the verse. It says in verse 9, if you look with me there, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And in verse 10, it repeats, for when I am weak, then am I strong. And herein lies one of the most important Christian paradox. When I am weak, then am I strong. And a philosopher once said, of all deceivers in this world, of all deceivers, Fear most yourself. Of all the deceivers in this world, fear most yourself. A large portion today are pretty keen at discerning the people who are trying to deceive them. Oftentimes they get like sketchy emails or texts and say, oh, follow this link and you can claim $2,000. Like, wow, if you were a kid, you would be like, wow, $2,000 if I click this link. And we're very trained at discerning liars these days. You know, I can also discern when people are just trying to get something out of me. You know, in, in, when I was working in, in different grocery markets, when someone would start sweet-talking me, I knew that the next question would come where they would say, can you cover this shit for me? And I just knew it was coming. And I know when people are trying to get something out of me, when they're trying to extort something out of me. And so we're decent at detecting liars or decent at detecting people who are trying to scam or get ahead of you. But oftentimes, we never acknowledge the greatest liar in our lives. And that is ourselves. We lie to ourselves more than any other deceivers in this world. And the greatest end of a liar is that they start to believe their lies. They start to believe that the lies that they've fabricated their whole life, that they've told other people as truth, they actually start to think that that is factual and that was part of their DNA. Fear most yourself. Of all deceivers, fear most yourself. And this is the reason why I bring that up. Instead of acknowledging our weaknesses like, like uh, Paul here, we act like it's non-existent. 
we act like we don't have any weaknesses. What makes a great sports player are those who know exactly in what areas they're weak in. In the offseason, they will train and train and train to make up for the to, to improve in those weaknesses. There's a player right now in the NBA. His name is Ben Simmons. For seasons, he was known as the worst shooter. Just like a bad shooter in general. But every single season, he never becomes better. It's like he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he is a poor shooter. And that's why he is being traded around or no one wants him, basically. And similarly, we can't just gloss over, act like our weaknesses are non-existent. Because we do have weaknesses. None of us here are perfect. We lie to ourselves that our weaknesses are no big deal. We are aware of our weaknesses, but we don't really do anything to address it. There are some areas of weakness that predominantly really require human action. For example, if you're someone who is habitually late, all you really have to do is put alarm clocks. It should be that simple. But the vital areas of weaknesses are ones that require supernatural assistance. Things that we can't overcome by ourselves. Weaknesses that have always been a part of you. That you were never able to overcome and conquer. And I'm sure you can think of one right now of a weakness or a sin that you just can't overcome and jump over. And why not? It's because you're not asking God to help you with your weaknesses. To give you strength. These vital weaknesses tend to be the ones that impact us the most negatively. And this sort of vital weaknesses can only be overcome by acknowledging them, by understanding that they exist. And by acknowledging them, we simultaneously acknowledge our need of God. We acknowledge the fact that we can't overcome these vital areas of weaknesses by our own power. And that is important for growth. When we acknowledge our weakness, only then can we obtain our greatest strength, our greatest source of power. When we know we are weak, we finally admit that our own power, that our own knowledge, and that our own strength does not suffice to overcome the greatest obstacles of life. And when we are at rock bottom, that is when it finally dawns on us that we ought to go to God for deliverance. It's when you're at rock bottom that you start actually asking the Holy Spirit for strength and enabling and filling when you are physically strong and when you glory in your successes, you will not have the desire to go to the Holy Spirit and ask for His strength, for His power. But the Holy Spirit is the source of the Christian strength. So if you never acknowledge the fact that you are desperate and that you are weak, you will never be able to be an overcoming Christian. You need the Holy Spirit, folks. God knows the bad in us. He knows all of our weaknesses. He even knows all of the weaknesses that we don't perceive ourselves to be weaknesses. God is not judging us for being imperfect. He is not seeking a perfect vessel, but He is seeking a vessel who will be entirely dependent to Him. But Brother Ivan, I can't erase the sins that I committed in my past. Maybe I can go to God and ask for His assistance in my current problems, in my current weaknesses, but all of the things that I've done long ago, I can't erase those things. My heart is still scarred from all of those things. What can I do? I, I, God can't help me with those, can He? What am I to do with all of the wrong and wicked acts, acts that I've done long ago? Now at camp, in the Thursday split session for the guys, I had this illustration. I pulled out a white shirt. And this white shirt, I used as an illustration to portray how easily our hearts can be dirtied how easily our hearts can turn 
impure and corrupted. And every single time I would list something that would be a possible cause of corruption, I would be like music, fashion, uh, the things that we watch, the things that we play, even uh, secular activities, I would take a sauce and I would just kind of sprinkle it on the shirt. By the end of the thing, by the end of the message, when I finished all eight points, that once white shirt has been completely marred and dirtied and it's been corrupted. But obviously, if I left the message on that note, it would be very depressing. Because who would want a forever permanently scarred heart, forever corrupt heart? No one wants that. And I ended the, the message with this point. Our heart can get corrupted by wickedness. Our heart can be marred by sin. It can be impure from all of the world. But we always have the opportunity to ask God to forgive us of our sins. To be given a clean slate. To be given a new heart. Create in me, O Lord, a, a pure heart, a clean heart. And He will. Back to the character of Paul. He had a terrible past too. He persecuted and sent many early Christians to jail, or in many cases even, probably to death. Women, men, children, he sent all of them to jail, to death. And he was a persecutor of Christians. And do you not think that his past dawned on him when he was serving God? Do you think, don't you think that his past started to weigh on him and burden him when he started serving the Lord? And I, I'm sure he did. But through Christ, he was able to move on from his past. He continued to serve God zealously. He asked for forgiveness, and God forgave him with perfect forgiveness. Not our type of forgiveness, but with his forgiveness. No matter how bad your past may be, if you sincerely and with a repentant heart go to him, he will, like Psalm 51.10 says, create in you a clean heart. He knows the good in us. He knows the bad in us, which is all of our weaknesses. And lastly, he knows the ugly. And turn with me to Jeremiah 23, 24. Jeremiah 23, 24, which says, I'll wait for a little bit more, less, less rustling, and then I'll read it. 23, 24, Jeremiah 23, 24, which says, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? God's omniscience, depending on which side you're on, can either be one of the greatest blessings in a Christian life, the greatest doctrines in the Christian life, the most encouraging doctrine, or it can be the greatest threat or the biggest cause of concern, you could say. You can run as far away as you want, but God is omnipresent, which means He's everywhere, but He's also omniscient. He knows everything that you do. The ugly, in my sermon at least, I dis I've differed the ugly from the bad in this one area. The bad are the weaknesses that are either given to us by God or are weaknesses that we are actively trying to improve upon with God's aid. That's how I've classified the bad. But this last point of the ugly, God knows the ugly, are the sins that we allow to fester, that we allow to dwell within our hearts, that we have no desire to get rid of. The sins that we allow to have free reign and control of our living. That is what I, I've mentioned as the ugly. To God, any sin that you are knowingly committing, that you are knowingly uh, allowing in your life, and you know it's a sin, 
to God, that is an abomination. If you are a compulsive liar, you are not just lying to others. You are, you are, but ultimately you are spitting at God's authority. You are spitting at His laws. If you're the type to always get angry at other people, you're not just inconveniencing or hurting other people's feelings, but you are, in a way, directly yelling at all of God's commands. You are directly rebelling against God. The sins that we are willingly committing don't just affect those around us, but ultimately it affects God. Each sincere act of sin is like waving a flag of rebellion to God. It doesn't matter whether your sin is public. It doesn't matter, matter whether your sin is private within the confinements of your own room. All unconfessed sin are abominable to God. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 28.9. When I was a kid, I, I, I never liked preachers who made me turn so much. I was like, ah, making me turn again. I just want to take a nap here. I was a bad kid, by the way. So don't follow my example. 1 Chronicles 28.9. It says, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. And here's the key phrase here. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. The Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. God is constantly searching our hearts. God is constantly reviewing and looking at our thoughts, what we're thinking about. And folks, there is no way there's absolutely no way, conceivable way, to hide the ugly sins that you are committing from God. There is no way that you can shield those sins from God. We see in the book of beginnings, Genesis, that God saw the exceeding evil of man, and He chose to bring the hammer down on humanity. It says in Genesis 6-5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You may be a great Christian outwardly, but God can see exactly when. He can look at your heart and see that it is only thinking of evil things continually, of wicked and perverse things. You can't hide wicked living from God. Are the thoughts of your heart today continually evil? Are the thoughts of your mind continually perverse? Well, if it is, God knows. God knows about it. No one else in this world may know, but God does. God is a, is, it, it has extreme long-suffering and patience and mercy. But like in the book of beginnings in Genesis, there was a time where He finally brought the hammer down on humanity. There is a time where His patience will run out regarding your sins. He is long-suffering. He is loving. He is patient. Those things are attributes of God, but He also hates sin. We can't just preach on the love of God and completely exclude the fact that He hates sin, that it is an abomination to His sight. The reason why He is willing to bring the hammer down on your life when you're living in sin is because He doesn't want His children to live in sin. He knows how damaging it is. He knows that it will bring you to destruction. He doesn't want you to live like that. 
And he, that's why he brings the hammer down when you are not listening. If the situation requires it, God is willing to chastise his children for their benefit. And that chastisement will be painful and it will hurt. But oftentimes that will turn a man's heart back to God. But before that hammer is brought down upon you, before God is still patient with your wicked living, go to God for forgiveness before that happens. A Christian counselor once said, the fact that God sees every aspect of our lives may at first leave us afraid and eager to hide from God rather than in awe, wanting to embrace Him. But the fear of the Lord makes us aware both of God's holy purity and hatred of sin and His holy patience and forgiveness. When we remember both, we have no reason to run in fear, especially since there is no place to run beyond the gaze of God. Instead, as we look at the Lord, we see that He invites, cleanses, and empowers us to grow in holiness. God knows the good, God knows the bad, and the ugly of our lives. In every sense of the word, He is truly omniscient. He is truly all-knowing. Don't run away from Him because you feel unworthy. Don't try to hide from Him because of your wicked living. The only right course of action is to lovingly acknowledge the fact that He is omniscient. And with a knowledge of that truth, to get right with Him. To live for Him. To thank Him. If you are afraid of God because of the fact that He is omniscient and He sees everything that you're doing behind the scenes, that may be an indicator that you are not living as you ought to. But if you are on this side and you are ecstatic to know that God is omniscient and that He sees all of your labor and toiling, that may be an indicator that you are going in the right direction towards God. Those who are afraid of God's omniscience are those who are not living as they ought to. And I pray that all here tonight will be on the side of being ecstatic, to be excited, to be full of joy, rather than being afraid to know that God is omniscient. God is not a taskmaster waiting to punish and bring down a hammer on us. He is a loving Father who simply wants us to live our best lives. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.